And now a reading from the book of Numbers. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the Tell the, tell the rock before the, uh, their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed, them, showed himself holy. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten and sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, J.M., and thank you all for being with us today at River Oaks. It is really uh, great to have you here. Um, I want to take just a moment to say a few words about who we are as a church, uh, especially for those of you who uh, may be relatively new to our church. One of the best ways to learn a bit about who we are here at River Oaks is by looking at what we call our vision frame. You'll see it on the screen, and uh, think of the vision frame as a is a window frame through which you're looking into the future. And as you look around the sides of the frame, you see our, our mission, our discipleship pathway, which we think of as a, a map for spiritual growth, and then our values and uh, marks. The Vision 2025 document itself is about a page and a half long, and so, of course, I won't put it on the screen. But I do want to read for you um, one short paragraph of three sentences that comes out of our vision 2025. I think you'll see it on the screen as well. 
Here's part of our vision for the next five years. The centrality of outreach at River Oaks has shaped a culture of hospitality toward internationals who study, work, and live in Forsyth County. This is our vision. This is what we think the Lord wants to do among us and increase among us. The richness of the church's corporate worship is enhanced by the presence of worshipers from over two dozen different nations. Actually, um, I think that is the case now, that we have at least two dozen people in our church from different countries, so maybe we should upgrade that to, to four, three or four dozen different nations. Members and guests often note that worship services at River Oaks look like heaven because of the diversity of race, ethnicity, and age in the congregation. This is what we hope we will increasingly see over the next few years, and I want to ask you to join me in praying for the Holy Spirit to bring this to pass. And uh, somewhat related to that, I did not ask them in advance, but I want to recognize uh, some new friends in our church. Uh, Pastor Wagi, could you just stand up for a moment? And uh, Mariana and Ronnie, I don't, is Pastor Iman there with you? He's over here. Would you all stand up as well, Iman and Samar, your family? Um, I want to recognize uh, some very special friends from Egypt and tell you about something that's happening in our church uh, right now on Sunday, mor uh, Sunday mornings. Pastors Ayman and Wagi are doing a service in Arabic uh, from 1030 to 1130 in our discipleship center that's being broadcast online to 600 or more up to maybe 1,000 listeners in the Middle East. And a uh, very, very exciting thing that's happening. And I want to ask you as, you as you see them to encourage them, but I want to take a moment now just to pray for God's blessing on what they're doing. It's a tremendous uh, ministry, and we're very privileged that it's happening here on Sunday mornings. So would you join me as we pray for them? Father, we come in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for your blessing. And Pastor Wagi and Ayman, Mariana, Samar, and their families. We pray the Holy Spirit would work through them powerfully as they teach and preach and send out your word, your encouragement to listeners all over the Middle East. We pray that those listening would increase in number and in spiritual growth and spiritual hunger and that you would work in and through our friends, that you would bless them and keep them and Cause your face to shine upon them and give them your great favor. May peace and blessing be upon them today, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Oh, you're way over here, Samara. I didn't see you. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you all again for being here today. We're continuing our uh, theme, our series that we're calling One Story we're looking at the unity of the Old and New Testaments. Someone once said that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old is in the New revealed. And I think that is especially true of the passages we're looking at today from the book of Numbers. J.M. read those just a moment ago. Two passages, one in Numbers 20, one in Numbers 21. Now, why would a book of the Bible, a book of the Old Testament, be called the book of Numbers? 
It's because in the book of Numbers, uh, on two occasions, there, there is a census of the people, the Israelites, the people of Israel. And the, the book opens with uh, the census of the Israelites. And so that, I think, is why it's called the book of Numbers. And uh, I'd like to look at this this morning at how this book fits into God's big picture plan. If you've ever read it before, you may wonder what possible relevance this book could have to our lives. I'd like to consider that this morning. In the passage that we just heard a moment ago from Numbers chapter 20, what we see happening first is that the Israelites, the people, are complaining. They're complaining against uh, Moses and Aaron. Moses was their leader. Aaron was his brother. And the scripture says they're complaining because as Moses and Aaron are leading them through the wilderness, uh, they come to a place where there's no water. And so the people come together. This is a large number of people. Uh, Biblical scholars suggest that when Moses led the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt, where they'd been over 400 years, that there were 600 plus men mentioned, so in all well over a million people. And this is the crowd that Moses is leading through the wilderness wanderings, as this uh, period is sometimes called. So they come to a place there's no water. They, They gather against Moses and Aaron and quarrel and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished Uh, before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? There are at least two occasions when this happened with the Israelites. The first is at the beginning of their wilderness wanderings. It's found in the book of Exodus. They get to a place where there's no water. They complain, they quarrel. And so God says to Moses, I'm going to stand before you on this apparently large rock, and you're to take your staff and you are to strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people will drink. That's what they did. This was years earlier than the event we're considering today. That was at the very start of their wilderness wandering. Now years later in Numbers 20, we're at the end of their wilderness wandering and they're complaining again. So God gives instruction to Moses. They've complained for water, and God spoke to Moses. And this time he did not say, take your staff, strike the rock, and water will come out. God says to Moses, take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and speak to the rock. Tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give to the congregation Uh, and their cattle. Why did God instruct Moses differently on this second occasion regarding the rock, regarding water? I don't know. The important thing is that he did. He did tell Moses what to do, but Moses disobeyed. Moses' disobedience is seen in the next verses. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. The congregation drank and their livestock. Now, why did Moses disobey the Lord? What's happening here? 
Well, the next thing we see is God's judgment. God was not happy with the way Moses did this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. In other words, Moses, you've been leading the people all these years. You're not going to take them on into the promised land. That's a pretty severe judgment. This has been the goal for Moses. This is the place to which they're going. And God says to Moses, you're not going to take them there. These are the waters of Meribah. The word Meribah means quarreling, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Why such a severe judgment on Moses? For just losing his temper, because these people obviously aggravated him throughout their journeys. Why so severe? I don't know for sure. Perhaps Moses' actions made it look like he and Aaron were the key to everything. He said, you rebels, shall we bring you rock out of the water? I mean, water out of the rock? But maybe there's something deeper here. Maybe Moses was obscuring something that this rock that would yield water represented. Let's look at it just a little bit further. We'll come back to it in a moment, but I want to look at the second um, instance here in Numbers 21 of the people complaining, and it's found in Numbers chapter 21, the very next chapter. So they're continuing in their wilderness wanderings from Mount Hor, they, the Israelites, led by Moses, set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden, and the people became impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and Moses. This was apparently common complaining against God, complaining against Moses. Can you imagine that for a moment? Being Moses, he didn't want to lead the people of Israel to begin with. God called him at a burning bush to do this. And Moses said, I'm not a good speaker. I don't I, Send somebody else. God persuades Moses to go. And so he's been leading these Israelites. He led them out of their bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh. And that was a challenging task. You may have read of the many plagues and things that, that were worked to, so that ultimately Pharaoh released him. And now he's leading God's people doing what God's told him to do. And they're just constantly quarreling against him. They're challenging his leadership. They're saying, who made you the leader? Who put you in charge? And so again, they're complaining. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and water here. We loathe this worthless food, this manna from heaven that God gave them in response to their hunger. So God sends a judgment. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Wow. The next verse says, we have sinned. Pray to the Lord for us. So Moses prayed for the people, and God gave a remedy. This is constantly happening. The people sin, but Moses prays. Moses stands before God and says, God have mercy on this rebellious people. Moses was an intercessor. And there is a sense in which every follower of Jesus Christ, every Christian, is an intercessor. You're called to stand before God on behalf of people who do not know him, people who rebel against him, people who do not know his love and his salvation. If you're a Christian, like Moses, 
You're an intercessor for someone, for some group of people. Now Moses prays, says, have mercy on them, Lord, and God gives a remedy. It's an unusual remedy, but he says, make a fiery serpent. That is, make a replica of these fiery serpents that have been biting the people. Uh, put it on a pole. Hold it up. Everybody who's bitten, all he's got to do is look at it. If they'll believe what I've said, my word through you, they, they just look at it. They'll be healed. They'll live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, the bronze serpent might have looked something like, like this, shaped out of bronze, just put on a pole, and it seems an odd symbol, doesn't it? Look at the next picture. It looks a little more like what you may have seen. Have you ever seen uh, an older medical office or an older pharmacy where there was some kind of an image like this, serpent on a pole? You may have wondered, where in the world would that ever come from? What's the origin of that? And I think it's here because throughout history, this has, to some degree, carried the idea of, of healing, of recovery. And so the Israelites were simply told to look upon this serpent on a pole. It's an interesting thing. Over the coming years, the Israelites, as they journeyed on into the promised land, they carried the bronze pole and serpent with them. And many years later, as we're reading about the various kings of Israel, good and bad, there arose a good king. His name was Hezekiah. His story is told in the book of 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 4 where the scripture says he began to reign and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and here's something he did. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. They made an idol out of it. God gave it so they could be healed to show his mercy, and they made an idol out of it. They began to worship it. They began bringing offerings to it. So the good king, Hezekiah, trying to put away idolatry from the land, as he's putting away idolatry, he says, grind that thing up to powder and just get rid of it. It's an idol. Now, what do all these stories have to do with us? I think that both the rock in Numbers and the serpent on the pole were what we've been calling shadows, types, things we see in the Old Testament that in some way point to something more significant than themselves, point to something future, shadows pointing to some substance. Again, it's been said that the New Testament the, in the old concealed, the old in the new revealed, and I think that's particularly true here because we really need the help of a New Testament passage to understand anything about what's going on in these accounts and numbers. And I want to look at such a passage now. It's found in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I want to read it to you. This is written by the Apostle Paul. If you're not familiar with him, the Apostle Paul was a leading uh, Jew, a persecutor of the early Christians. His account is given to us in Scripture after the Gospels 
after the life of Jesus, Jesus has been crucified, he's been raised from the dead, and now Saul of Tarsus was his name, is converted uh, to faith in Jesus, and he's become the great leader, a great leader of the early Christian church, an apostle, uh, a teacher, and he's writing to the church at Corinth. And he says some things that I think are just remarkable, but they give us some insights into the significance of what happened in numbers for our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he writes these words. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, and he's referring to their Jewish ancestors, the Israelites in the wilderness, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, He's talking about their journeyings with, with uh, a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day, God's presence with them passing through the Red Sea. All passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. What do we make of this? Well, for one, I think Paul is saying that Christ the rock is the giver of spiritual life. They all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. I don't think he means that a literal gigantic rock was following them, but in some way that I don't fully understand, he clearly says the spiritual rock, Christ, was with them, And Christ is clearly in Scripture the giver of living water. Jesus, we're told in the Gospel of John chapter 4, engaged a woman from Samaria in conversation at a well of water. He asked her for water to drink. And she is surprised that he, a Jewish man, would ask of her, Samaritan woman, uh, water to drink. It was contrary to their custom. But Jesus went on to explain that he would give water Uh, of which if a person drank, they'd never thirst again. Living water. What did he mean by that? Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to uh, those listening in John chapter 7 and verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. In some way that I don't fully understand, 
Paul the Apostle is telling us that Christ was present with the Israelites. He was the giver of life for them, for those who would believe, for those who would trust in God. They were offered the opportunity to drink of spiritual drink from the spiritual rock that followed them, that rock which was Christ. Perhaps, I don't know this for sure, but that perhaps when Moses in anger struck the rock, he was in some way obscuring the type, the shadow, which God intended there. Furthermore, I think we see in 1 Corinthians 10 that when we sin, we're not just sinning against other people, we're sinning against Christ. Notice again what Paul writes. We must not put Christ to the test if some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. What he's saying is that when the people in the wilderness were complaining against God and their lot in life and the place they found themselves, though God had called them, God was leading them, God was to be worshipped, God was their God, now they've forgotten that they're complaining against him. He's equating that with putting Christ to the test. A lot of people think, my sin is okay because it doesn't hurt anybody. My sin is okay because it's just involving me, maybe another person who's consensual in a relationship, but my sin's not hurting anybody. What we fail to realize is that all sin, all sin ultimately is against God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Israelites, when they complained against God, when they just persisted in their unbelief, though they'd seen God do mighty works for them, though he had saved them from bondage in Egypt and called them to be his people, as they grumbled, as they, they, they continued in unbelief, they were sinning against Christ. They were sinning against the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've all done that. But there's another truth we see, and for this we need to look at the New Testament book of the Gospel of John, and that, that is that salvation is provided for us by Christ. Jesus himself, John chapter 4 says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And you know what he's referring to. Moses made the bronze serpent. People were told, you look at the serpent and you'll live. As Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, and that's Jesus' frequently used title for himself, be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What is Jesus saying? Well, first of all, if you're like me, it sounds just a little bit troubling because the very thought of the serpent on the pole representing Christ is a troubling thought because a serpent is equated since the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, with the curse. In the Garden of Eden, it was Satan through the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve and was cursed by God. So, so this serpent is representative of a curse. 
Furthermore, dying on a cross is equated with a curse from God. The book of Deuteronomy says, cursed is one who's hanged on a tree, recurring to crucifixion. Yet Jesus was sinless. He was the Son of God, God the Son, who came to this earth, who knew no sin, who perfectly fulfilled the law of God as we could never do. And no one else has ever done. And yet he willingly gives himself as an offering on the cross. Why? Because on him, the sinless Son of God would be laid the judgment for our sin, our curse, the curse we were due. He took our place. He took our place there so that the Apostle Paul could write, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. As the Israelites in the wilderness were told to merely look what God provided, believe what God said, in faith they could be healed. So the Son of Man, Jesus, would be lifted up upon a cross, and we're told that whoever believes in him recognize our need, the sickness of sin in our lives, and that we cannot remedy that on our own. We look to God's remedy, Jesus, and put our faith in him. Then we get the famous words, John 3, 16, that whoever believes in him would not perish, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, let's go back to what the Apostle Paul wants to teach us from the example of the Israelites in Numbers, in Numbers 20 and 21 and their various wilderness wanderings. As followers of Jesus Christ, he's calling us to learn, to learn from their example. And you may have noticed when I read this just a moment ago, but let's look at it again. Twice he tells us we're to learn from their example. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, these things in the Old Testament, the, the water out of the rock instances, the, uh, the serpent on the pole Occasion. These things were written down. They became scripture. They're in the Old Testament to teach us. So don't let anybody ever tell you that a Christian does not need the Old Testament. The Old Testament's supposed to teach us. It's written for our instruction as followers of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit inspired its writing. Well, what are these examples specifically supposed to teach us? The Apostle Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 10 that we must avoid doing what they did. He said, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. We must not put Christ to the test, nor grumble, as some of them did. These are the things, Paul says, we look at their example, and God's teaching us to avoid idolatry, for one. Idolatry is worshiping something other than God. 
It's giving preeminence to something else. There's one particular sin that I can think of that the New Testament calls idolatry, and that is covetousness, greed. The Apostle Paul speaks of it when he says, no greedy, covetous person who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. Love of money, grave danger, Jesus warned about. Sexual immorality, word that's used often in the New Testament, used broadly referring to any type of sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage as God has designed it, given it to us in the book of Genesis. Grumbling. Grumbling about where God's placed us in life. I find this one difficult to avoid, do you? Grumbling about my life circumstances sometimes. Have you ever said, God, why have you put me in this job? Why have you put me, God, I know you're my, my savior. Uh, I know I've prayed about things. I thought I married the person I was supposed to marry, but God, why have you put me in this marriage? Very easy in life to begin to put God to the test when he's blessed us immensely. When we know that we've embraced the salvation of Jesus and we go through life really believing in his sovereign guidance and we seek him for his leading and then we end up where he's led us and then we, we grumble, we murmur, we complain. Paul's saying, look at the Israelites, learn from them. Their example was written down for our instruction. Don't desire evil like they did. Live by faith. If we put the sins of the Israelites all in the, under, under the category of one sin, it would be the sin of unbelief. Unbelief. A lack of faith, a lack of trust in God. How do we do that? How do we avoid these things? The Apostle Paul continues to teach us and to teach us it's not by our own willpower, it's not by our own determination, it's not by our own strength, it is by trusting in God's faithfulness. So he continues with these very important words. Let's really take these to heart. Now these things, these Old Testament instances, they happen to them as an example. They're written down for our instruction. They're in Scripture to teach us. Therefore, because we have these examples, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You hear what he's saying? The key first to avoiding these things is humility. It's humility. It's not, it's not saying, God, I'm better than they are. I'm not going to do these things. It's saying, you take heed if you think you can stand in your own strength. Starting place for overcoming sin is humble dependence on the grace and power of God. It's humility. Don't you look at your friend who's committed adultery and say, what an idiot. I could never do that. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Humility. Secondly, trust in the faithfulness of God. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We have responsibility, absolutely, 
Our responsibility is to trust in the faithfulness of God, to rely upon, to lean upon Him. Humility, trust in the faithfulness of God. These, I think, are the key, the keys. When we struggle with idolatry, like greed, we struggle with some form of sexual immorality or temptation. We struggle with grumbling, complaining, murmuring about the place in life where God has us. I want to ask you to join me now as we pray for one another about these things. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you that you have given us scripture to teach us. And when we read it, when we see it, we recognize that we have all fallen short of your glory and of your truth. Father, we ask for the merciful help of the Holy Spirit that you'd forgive us for our wrongdoing, that you would lead us forward in the power of your Spirit. Especially ask that you teach us today how to live before you and others in increasing humility and at the same time increasing faith in your faithfulness, your faithfulness to keep us. And Lord, I pray that you would work deeply in each one of us here today to repent where we need to repent, to humble ourselves where we need to humble ourselves. Let's just take a moment of silence now for you to pray about anything that God has brought to your mind you need to confess to him or perhaps an area where you need to pray for his strength in your life. Father, we again remember your words. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.